Hey, Peaceniks. We did it. We made it to the year 2022. Today's guest is Carlin Zwornstein, journalist and author of the book Opium Eater and the book she had her publisher send me, which I am grateful for. It was a great book and she did an outstanding job. The book is called On Opium. In it, she talks about her personal struggles with pain as she has an illness that causes her constant pain that she treats with a mild prescription opioid. When I asked her my first question, I asked her what led her to writing this book and how she has been affected by her illness, which she quickly said was two separate questions. I thought it was her illness that led her into the world of writing about opioid addiction, and so I was thrown off a little. I feel like in this podcast there were a few times when I brought up her issues with pain and didn't get the answer I was expecting, and it wasn't until the very end when I realized, after she said it more bluntly, that she isn't that she didn't want to talk about her personal struggles with pain and that she wanted to focus more on the larger picture and the problems with the war on drugs and how it has been devastating for those who use opioids on the streets. I should have picked up on her more subtle hints earlier, but I didn't. But I did learn something on this episode, to listen more deeply, especially when talking about a subject that is very personal to someone else. But either way, we had a great conversation and Carlin has really done an excellent job as a writer giving a voice to the voiceless, shining a light into the dark alleys that the drug users have been forced into by this pointless and inhumane war on drugs. So thank you for listening. And Carlin, thank you for joining us on the Peace on Drugs podcast. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug Drugs abuse. are menacing our society. Your thoughts on the drug problem? I had a great time doing drugs. So tonight, from our family to yours, from our home to yours, thank you for joining us. This is the Peace on Drugs. On drugs. All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this podcast. Yeah, you've been getting around. You're talking to so many people I know. It's yeah, yeah, I've been. Uh, it's like a whole uh, universe on Twitter with everybody kind of in the yeah. same space. It's really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, so I wanted to you pronounce your name, Carlin. Is that right? Carlin Swarnstein. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much for sending me this book. It was great yeah. reading it. I feel like I got to know you a little bit. Um. So I have a whole list of things, you know, that I went through from your book that I'd like to, some of it we can go over. We don't have to get to, to all of it, but um, I'm going to start with, do you want to explain a little bit about uh, what, you know, got you to write this book um, and about, uh, talk about the ankylosing spondylitis and what, you know, you go through with the pain management for that. Uh, okay. So those are two separate things. So maybe we'll just start with the one. Um, okay. Okay. So uh the book is two, really two books. The first part of it, which is focuses on pain and opioid painkillers, um, was published as a really skinny little book that I have somewhere um, in 2016 by a, a really tiny publisher. And it went, it uh, did fine, went out of print though, um, the publisher folded. Uh, so the second, so between 2016 and when the next book was written in 2020, I started to learn, the first book came out. I heard, I learned that it was being appreciated by people who were into harm reduction. And I actually didn't even know anything about harm reduction. Um, very, very little. 
Uh, and so I started following in, in that first book, my editor had pushed me to write about addiction and, and overdose and things that I didn't really know anything about and didn't care very much about. And so I started following that stuff, particularly following some journalists on, on Twitter and starting to form my own opinions and seeing that there were some people who seemed to be actually talking to the people experiencing the issue and some people who had a, a very, a narrative that was very, um, like tropes that were very, uh, very easy, very like stereotyped that I recognized from my experience with pain. And so I started kind of starting to distinguish and to be able to see which ones seem to be making sense. So I started reading the literature myself and, and I found that there's a lot more that I had to say. Um, and over that time, I started actually meeting and speaking to people who use illicit drugs. And, um, and I started to realize that the issue of overdose and illicit opioids and, and then generally prohibition policies, which take in both kinds, um, it actually brings out some of the things that I used to write about as journalists, you know, almost 20 years ago. Uh, when I've always, I've always, as a freelance journalist, I've always covered things of inequality, inequities, poverty, um, and social movements that, like, um, social movements led by the people experiencing the issue. And I started to see that in in the world of illicit drugs and the way different overlapping, like you have all these interlap, overlapping intersectional oppressions, um, you see that in a most concentrated form when you look at uh, drugs. Um, so I kind of returned to my original interest and I became really obsessive and interested in it and then formed these relationships and, and friendships with, with um, people experiencing these issues. So I had more to say. Um, and that was the genesis of the other two parts of the book, which is 75% of, of the book. Um, yeah. 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 You, you talk a lot about the, the hard fact that the people that are hit the hardest from the war on drugs and this the opioid crisis, as they're calling it, are the people that are, um, you know, the black and brown communities and the poor communities are hit, really devastated. You talked about the pill mills that were kind of positioned in the poor areas. So when those were shut down, the first people to get cut off of their supply were the poor communities and and they're, they're a lot higher risk of overdose, suicide. And this is the big problem. So um, so also your, your own uh you know, dealing with um, pain, your, uh, you know, what do they call long-term pain? Um, you you write about, you you know, you have this constant fear that you could be cut off of your opiate supply because they're, they're constantly cracking down and this is a constant concern. Yeah. Yeah, there's the, I mean, I've been very little af affected by what I, I understand is how I'm writing an article right now about um, Canadian pain patients and opioids. And in the process, I've learned that even, even here, my experience is a little bit different from a lot of people. Sometimes that has to do, often that has to do with class, um, where you happen to, to be being treated. Um, I take a very low dose of a very mild opioid, so that, that's part of it, but I don't think that's the only issue. Um, the fact that I have a disease that is not necessarily more common in men, but is more um, thought is thought to be more common in men is more often identified in men. Um, I think means that the entire way it's treated is is quite different than if I had something like fibromyalgia, for example, that's um, thought to be more common in women. Um, so, so my experience is a bit a bit different. But I think like every single 
person who uses opioids and, and many who use other controlled substances have had the experience of not ha- of having called in a prescription on a Thursday. It hasn't been filled by the Friday. It's a long weekend. You can't, the pharmacy, there seems to be no real communication between the pharmacy and the doctor. No one's on, on call and you're at risk of withdrawal. Like it's not as well as it being the thing that allows me to manage my life. It's uh, there's, there's a very urgent medical issue and there seems to be very little attention to keeping it, um, keeping a, a constant supply for people who are dependent on, on a substance. Um, and think experiences like that and then needing to go to the pharmacy and not seem too, you know, too eager to get the prescription, but also uh, needing to secure that, things like that give you right away the sense of, um, like a sense of the reality of, of that, yes, a, a small change, a small change in the attitude of the prescriber, of the pharmacist, of government policies, anything like that could change the thing that has fundamentally given me back my life. Yeah. And so you see, you're actually worried when you go to the pharmacy that if you seem too eager, they might get suspect, like suspect. And There's nothing, there's no other, I mean, I, there's various medications that I take to manage my condition, but there's no other one where it's very important not to say, well, I, I like this one, but this, this brand better than this, or I like this, or this isn't working. We like to use words that might imply that you, that you like it. Where another thing I'll say, oh, I'm, you know, I used to take a an, an very strong anti-inflammatory that I used to take for men- menstrual cramps at a low dosage. And I said, oh, that thing saved my life. I love it. And uh, later that particular thing is um, destroyed my gut, but um, at a dose for, for my spine. But it's it's completely, you can say things like that, don't, and it doesn't, it's not thought to have any deeper meaning, but I think everyone's conscious of the way things can be interpreted with a controlled substance, that anything you say could be weighed in in a different way. And uh, I don't know if I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm given what I see from other people. I don't think that's an unreasonable thing to think. Yeah, I I agree. I remember I I was addicted to Vicodin for a few years and every once in a while I would, the person I would get it from, I think they got it from one of those pain pill places because they had a a bunch, almost unlimited supply, but every once in a while they'd run out. And I remember one time I was at the doctor trying to get Tramadol because that was the one that they would, like they wouldn't, if I said Vicodin, they wouldn't give it to but I remember having to try to act like I couldn't remember the name of it. Like it was called something like, uh, and then, and then they'd yeah. be like, Tramadol. like, yeah, I think that was it. Just because if I said Tramadol, they'd be like, nope, he's looking for pain pills, yeah, yeah, yeah. which I it's, was. But. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it's a very strange thing. And it sets you up to, it sets up dishonesty. And mm-hmm. um, like, I never asked for opioids. It, it, I never even came and asked for pain treatment. I just went to my doctor's office looking you know, clearly not managing more as almost a mental health thing. And they could see that I was, you know, they could see that I was suffering. And eventually after trying everything else that they ended up prescribing me the tramadol. Um, but when you've been a, a patient for a very long time, you do start to, you know, what works for you, you know, what doesn't work for you. And so it actually is natural to ask, to ask for things by, by name, to say this, this one caused these side effects, this one didn't, this dosage works for me, this doesn't. It actually is natural, but that level of expertise is, is seen as suspicious. And obviously for reasons, but the whole idea of suspicion is, is a framework that whether, for whatever reason you're using it, it's the wrong framework to approach a, a medical issue. Yeah, I completely agree. And like you said, pe- people know their bodies themselves. They know how, and also a lot of people that are look, are seeking drugs, uh, or drug seeking, which is a term you said we need to get rid of. I yeah. agree. Yeah. But they, like there's like uh, David Poses talked about it. 
you know, these are people that are in pain, but it's mental pain. It doesn't have to be physical pain. People that, um, for whatever reason, and you even talked about, it's not just childhood trauma. There's the um, ongoing traumas of, you know, poverty, racism, and things that are going to continue and people self-medicate for these things. And the idea that if they're seeking reprieve from some of these, the idea that we we, pour, we, we punish them for seeking reprieve, we punish them for trying to, to, to find happiness. Yeah, I think it would make more sense to, if you were able to have a context, we could genuinely say that this is why I'm, if it was someone looking for, well, you could say, this is what I'm, you know, I'm looking for it because I've heard this might help this thing. Then you might be able to say, well, okay, is there something that might not result in dependence? Because no one particularly wants to be physically dependent on, on something. Is there something that, you know, maybe this dose of something is too, is actually going to cause side effects. If you could have an honest conversation with your doctor, I don't think you would have everyone, um, everyone taking pain pills. I don't think that's the, I don't think that's the natural react, like, result of honesty and, and being able to be to have a trusting relationship with your doctor but the fact that law enforcement is involved in the whole whole process and that there's um this sort of this moralistic way of dealing with medicine is um makes it very hard to have that it's a it's a there's a power relationship that makes it very hard to have an honest conversation yeah it is and that's something claire zagorski brought up was why we have law enforcement involved in medical issues in the first place. This, this is a medical thing. This are, and we have basically militarized our police force to, to fight this war on drugs, something that they really have no business being, being behind. I mean, it's, it's really kind of tragic. Um, also harm reduction we that you're talking about. I, I honestly, when I started this podcast, I started it simply as I saw the war on drugs, the problem it's caused for me personally being arrested, dealing with addiction. I was like, I want to talk about this, but I really hadn't done nearly enough research. Once I started doing the podcast, I realized there was so much to learn, so much to get into. And harm reduction was something I didn't know about, but I was really surprised when uh, she said, and you also wrote in your book that um, harm reduction, if you know, if you bring that up in a speech or whatever you're doing, you get no funding. If you say the word harm reduction, that that and say, just, it's such a strange thing. How could harm reduction be a bad thing? You said we have how many safe yeah. injection sites around the world? Zero overdose or zero, yeah, zero overdoses. Yeah. Zero, zero deaths. Zero deaths. Many, many overdoses. Yeah, they say when they overdose. That's the whole point of it. Yeah, yeah. you're right. Um, that's But now in places that have legal access to heroin, like Switzerland, I'm pretty sure that they have almost zero, almost zero overdoses. I'm sure there's... Um, exceptions to that, but it's so low compared to the United States where we have a hundred thousand in the last 12 months. Yeah. That's something that's, that's, it's unbelievable. It really is. Yeah. Um, so um, I was going to talk about, Oh, one thing that I learned from your book, like, I mean, I learned a lot, but one of the big things, because I just done my opioid crisis special is at the end of my special, I, I kind of was t giving um, addicts advice to what I think they could do, like fentanyl test strips you can buy. There's only so much you can do in this country. But um, one thing I suggested was trying, you, you know, trying to get sober. I know that's the obvious answer and the hardest. And I just said that, it, you know, I promise that a life is possible you know, a, a happy right. life is possible without opioids. And then reading your book, I realized that for some people, that's probably, that's just not true. For me, it was true. So I assumed it could be true for everybody. But you, you talked yeah. about one of the guys, Joe, yeah. in your book. But he said in your book, he said, sober is a miserable state, anxious, light sensitive, on my toes. Uh, part of it is how sharp my vision is. When I'm cold sober, everything feels like the sharpness setting is too high. And that's just something that's just, it was, 
really shocking to th- think that people under they can he, he tried sobriety for months at a time and it just wasn't working right yeah i mean in the context of the of overdose um there's the issue of is it it's it's dangerous for someone who is dependent on on an opioid and likely to relapse, which they are statistically likely to do, to be abstinent. Like it's it's actually dangerous, and so I think it should be presented to people as this is a risky choice. Is there a way we can support you to to ease into that if you really want to do it? But definitely, I don't think abstinence should be the default in that case. If you didn't have a situation of a toxic drug market, then it would be a little, it would be less dangerous and it would be more of an issue of, okay, what are we, what is the best, what is the way to maximize this person's life? And what, and first of all, letting them have autonomy over their choices, but also there's levels of trauma where the damage is done and whether the the insistence on abstinence as the one good means that you miss out on a lot of like of daily goods. If someone can, if, if a medication can allow you to get on with your life, life is pretty short. And so if it, if it can let you get on with your life rather than spending your entire life finding ways to emotionally survive a trauma or physically survive uh, something that is, is absolutely devastating. I, I guess having chronic illnesses made me more aware of the, the shortness of, of life and that sometimes you can spend so long and so much energy dealing with something and yes you may be able to deal with it in a non-pharmaceutical way but it's not just a quick fix it's actually something that allows you to do so many other things in your life if you're not spending the entire time in in trauma therapy or mindfulness or meditating or whatever i had that experience with pain that I, I kind of have gotten sick of some of the various things that i do to manage it when i could just be getting on with my life um and i think for for the complex ptsd it's uh it's some you know something I don't experience, but I at some point I think people know for themselves generally. But if you if people if they're given a, a set of there's all these possible options, do you want to spend your life doing this one? It, it may be that it just makes more sense to to keep people on maintenance of something. It is. What do you think the reasons are um, that we don't allow people that if we think they're getting high versus actually treating pain, why, why do we care that they get high? What's the big problem with somebody feeling good? It seems to me there's an idea of what high means that's a little different from the reality a lot of the time. Like we have an idea of intoxication that's very extreme and that most people don't want to be in in, a, in an ongoing way. So most people who are long-term users of a substance, it is more of a, you might, they might be feeling good. That's you know, part of, of life. We have coffee and feel good. But the idea of this sort of extreme, stumbling, incoherent thing is very scary to people. And I think it's not actually, it's not realistic. It isn't really what the situation is. Often when you're actually describing withdrawal, when you're describing someone who's essentially incapacitated. Exactly. Um, and so we've got to, so that's combined with um, with a sort of a Protestant moral attitude about suffering being good um and then it's that's enforced by the fact that we have a a whole set of laws that make it seem seem okay you just think of the way like when when gay marriage was was illegal that seemed the fact that there were laws that made it not that made it not possible made it also for for many people once it became legal like a a, a legal thing in Canada at least it 
suddenly became easier to grasp for people who who had a moral thing against it or apartheid in South Africa. Once the laws changed, people who kind of drifted along to to a way of thinking were easily able to move back, move move to a different way of thinking. We've got this this legal structure that is kind of enforcing our moral beliefs. Because there's laws about it, we assume it must be true. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that's the case. We've just been living in this framework that was created 100 years ago, and, and we don't know any other way to be. You're right. And you brought up the Protestant um, influence on these laws, and that's a huge thing in our country. Is, is that a big influence in your country as well? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. It is. Because I was surprised when I was, I was talking to John Sharp, and he's in the UK. He said that it doesn't affect their laws at all. And said it's weird that we have separation of church and state and they don't. And yet our laws are influenced so much by what the religious beliefs are. You can't even run for office in this country if you don't say you're a Christian, which is a strange thing. It's hard to believe that you have. It's absolutely impossible to believe that you guys have separation of church and state. I I really don't. I'm paperless. That's about it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um. I also want to, I just to dial back to something you said earlier. I wanted to ask you about. You said that you're the um, the uh, I hope I'm saying this right, ankylosing spondylitis. So that, that's a, a more men than women get. So yeah, it, it used. Sorry, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. No, no, no. Maybe finish your sentence. Okay. No, I was just going to ask. Uh, so what with what you were saying was that the reason that you think it's easier to be prescribed medicine is that because it's more men that they're if it had been a more like are, diseases that are more. Uh, female oriented are they that are less likely to prescribe for women if they're in pain i mean st- yes they are less it, it, they're more likely to be seen as a mental health issue i think the so um ankylosing spondylitis used to be thought of as a as a male disease and it particularly something that would hit you in your 20s sort of in the prime of life and um and so people were treated it was treated as serious um and serious meaning that I mean, there's still a, an accepted order of operations in which opioids are the last thing there. But it it was it just understood. You reach you reach that point, then you're that's the appropriate treatment. And you, the way pain is measured is is with these annoying scales. But your subjective impression is what is is accepted. No one no one ever sort of looked at me funny when I'd say this is how I'm feeling. They'd ask a set of questions and they'd say, "Wow, you're that's really bad." Um, and then they'd respond as uh, you know, appropriately for that. Uh, but people who have diseases that are, so other invisible diseases, um, like fibromyalgia is the one that comes to mind that tends to be identified as a women's disease, although it's not. Um, and there's no, there's no proof of it. Uh, that's, it's the, it's the physical evidence. Now in, in my case, I do have there an, an MRI or an X-ray I can see that there's damage to my spine, but the pain came, preceded the damage. And is not associated closely with it. So it's absolutely possible to be in terrible pain with ankylosing spondylitis and not have radiographic evidence of that. Um, so I don't know if it's because it can you can have physically your spine's physically changing. Um, I don't know if it, that's why, but it seems to me that there's a real gender division in how things are seen that that makes me suspect that part of it is just um, the way we react to men expressing pain. We assume that they're hiding it. It, that they're being very stoic and that they're what they say is if, if they report pain that is really bad whereas women are considered are thought to be exaggerating it that, that is just crazy i mean so the idea is that if uh, if i went and said i'm in pain and they're like well that's brave of me to come in and even say it because i'm probably that's probably been yes. building up for a long time 
Yeah, but yeah. if you go in there, they're just like, are you sure? Are you really like, how, like yeah. I don't believe you? That's, that's horrible. And I, I know that um, the same thing happens with minorities in this country. If you're, uh, if you're black and you go to the hospital, they're much less likely to prescribe you an opioid, which is. Yeah. And that's, there's a whole bunch of reasons for that, but I mean, doctors were taught. I don't, I, you know, things are changing all the time and changing in different areas. I don't know to what extent it's changed, but certainly at various points, doctors, were taught that black people had a different pain response and actually felt less pain. So things like that. And then also in, in the, around the pill mill time, there were some doctors observed that at that time there were lower rates of, of drug use and of, of prescription opioid use and of overdose in black communities, which was largely because of undertreated pain um, and because it hadn't hit those communities yet. Right, because because of racial segregation. So, but they report they reported, you know, white male doctors reported this very smugly. Look, these communities have been spared the opioid crisis because we're more careful about how we prescribe. They're mainly more careful because of previous um, stereotypes about black people using heroin and and about black people not having um, having a lower pain response. So these were all it was a bunch of garbage. Um, and it was inevitable that eventually those communities would also experience rising, um, rising overdose rates. And indeed, that's what's happening. It's, it's rising faster there than anywhere else. So it's uh, it was a, a bunch of garbage, but um, a lot of ideas that reinforced each other. Mm-hmm. This. So oh, one thing I wanted to bring up was... Um, you brought they brought up in the book that I really like that you because a lot of people don't see it this way with the, with the Mexican cartel problem, especially our country is going through a huge thing where half of the country wants a wall built and thinks that that the whole COVID thing is being caused by Mexicans. I mean, it's bizarre. Some of the things I hear when I I ask someone in my family if they've been vaccinated and their response is, why should I get vaccinated when there's thousands of Mexicans coming over every day with COVID? I'm like I, that that doesn't make any sense what you just said, but this is what's going on. But anyway. The war on drugs, and they're all coming over here with drugs. They don't understand the drug problem. But you said in your book, the war on drugs fueled by demand for drugs from the United States and powered by guns smuggled in from the U.S. and kept alive by global prohibition has devastated Mexico. And that's the thing people don't realize. It's not a problem of production or only a problem of production. It's a problem of consumption. If we weren't wanting the drugs and buying them, then there would be no problem. Yeah, I mean, you ask anyone in Mexico, so the guns come from the U.S., and there's this insatiable demand for drugs from the U.S. Um, like I would still see that differently I, I, because I'm not pro. I'm not. I'm anti-prohibition. So, but it's it's certainly not a one-way thing. And and the U.S. has been responsible for the very um, for the militarization of Mexico's response to to try and keep drugs out of the U.S. And so it's been you know this huge unbelievable human rights abuses perpetrated by U.S. trained security forces and um, and a cycle of demand that then they try to crush by by horrible policies in Mexico. Yeah. Yeah, so they had like 33,000 deaths and uh, violent deaths in uh, 2018. And this is all, you know, the United States funds their drug war. We started their drug war. We told them to outlaw opioids. They or outlaw drugs, and they said no. They said that the drug cartels would be a problem if we did that, as they were in your country. And we said, all right, well then we're going to cut off your opioid supply for your hospitals. So they folded and they outlawed drugs. And then now we're like, it's so bad down there. We should put up a wall. It's so ridiculous the way we're treating this. On COVID, if they'd kept some certain, um, uh, 
I think college students out of resort areas in Mexico, they might not have had COVID when they did as well. I mean, it's, it's a ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous scapegoating Mexico in this way. It is. So um, how much blame do you put on my country for all this? <laughs> like all of it, I guess. A lot, but it's your, it's policies developed largely a hundred years ago. And then a security apparatus and like industries of unregulated rehab industries of surveillance of patients, industries of surveillance of uh, people with addiction. Like there's a whole financial, as with most American things, it's, it's not American people. It's, certain policies that are financially self-interested. So it's a real, a real minority who are benefiting from this. And then a whole lot of people in misery. That is, that's a hundred percent true. And, and that's, that's the, that's the, the turn the ship around is going to be really hard because of these industries that we've created through the drug war machine, right? Like private prisons, uh, uh, private prisons, which is a crazy concept that we're going to profit off of people's incarceration. And then we have all the law enforcement. The DEA has a reason not to win what they're fighting. Because if they win what they're fighting, exactly. they no longer exist. Exactly. It's it's absolutely really scary. Um, I do like the idea that it's slowly starting to turn a little bit. Um, now, I was talking to David Poses, and he he thinks, and I'm, I'm curious what your opinion is, but I, I was telling him, you know, I was like, we're not talking about legal heroin that you can just walk into a store and buy. We're talking about you have to get a prescription, talk to your doctor. And he immediately cut me off and it's like, I disagree. He's like, you should be able to go in the store and buy it on a shelf. And, and I actually, I, I don't disagree with them. I think though, one step at a time, if we try to sell that, it's going to go crazy, but also it's a, it's a little hard to swallow the idea that you could just go and get heroin. But he said, if, well, if alcohol is that easy to get, why can't I get heroin? That's his point. What, what do you think about? Um, I think it's hard to say yet what the, what a world without prohibition would look like. And I would, I, I don't know. I'm not necessarily pro like incremental things. I, you, you could do this all at once. Um, but I think we still don't know what it would look like. I, one caution that I would have would be that the system, a legally regulated system needs to be designed for public and not for, for commerce, not for profit. And that's exactly where things would trip up in the US. Um, and that's where, so if you had, for example, like the, the heroin buyers club concept that's that um, has been advanced in Canada. Um, that would be small groups of people, community-based self-run purchase, bulk purchasing um, heroin that would be that in, the, in a different vision, there's some of the vision that I laid out there could be fair trade, produce, um, supporting small farmers in Mexico. Um, and it would be an idea of gradually moving people's doses down to something that allows them to live and, and be comfortable. Um, so something like that, you can, I can certainly imagine a system where you're, you're getting a little back to what we had um, at the end of the 19th century when very low potency opioid products were available commercially. Um, that wasn't well done because again, there was heavy marketing there was poor understanding of safety and, and dosage. And so the, the same problems that existed then are the problems that are, that are issue, potential issues now. But there were very, the, the degree of harm that existed then was, was quite, like relatively speaking, um, very little compared to what we've had in the ensuing 100 years. So and it is possible to imagine a situation where the, the, like the creation of stronger doses of things 
is a creation of prohibition. So if you were to remove that, you could move to something where you're, you're not talking about something that is actually as dangerous. And so when you talk about walking in and getting heroin off the shelf, ultimately in that, in that future vision, it isn't, it's not the same thing as it was. Um, but the way of getting there is, is harder to tell. And yes, I don't want my kids walking into a store and buying heroin off the shelf, but that's not what I'm, what we're imagining. If you remove the, if you remove the prohibition laws and you redesign a regulated system in such a way that it's not overly medicalized, which creates its own problems, and it's not overly commercialized, then you could have a system that is just where substances of all kinds are treated in a in a much more normal and balanced way um, and the kind of scary visions that we have of that uh, there's no reason that those would exist mm -hmm. i think the commercialization is a problem it's been a problem with alcohol it's uh, alcohol has become mm -hmm. such a part of our culture because it's constantly viewed as this sexy really cool thing to do at the beach with your friends you know, they don't have a commercial with some of the realities of alcohol, which is I've talked to paramedics who go all the houses they go to was alcohol, 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 opioid, alcohol, alcohol, you know. And um, so I, and I think so if we did legalize opioids, you know, a lot of there are states in our country where if you want alcohol, you can't get it at a grocery store. There's special stores for alcohol and you can go get it. You don't need a medical card. And maybe we do that with the opioids like you can get it, but you, it's not going to be a impulse buy it at the grocery store. It's going to be you're going to yeah. specifically go there for exactly. that. Yeah. So we've we've. You know, we've just set up that system with cannabis. Um, mm -hmm. The problems, at least in Ontario, where I am, is that it's been a highly commercialized version of it, which is there aren't some of the same harms as with with highly commercialized opioids or alcohol. But there are there certainly are harms in the way it's being done, and it's certainly not the people who are making a profit are not the the people who suffered under the war on drugs either. So doing it differently would mean that it's regulated for pu for public health rather than for for profit. Mm -hmm. And that is going to be a huge problem in this country. Not even a problem. It, it, if whatever when we legalize whatever we legalize, it will be for profit. That's how our country does things. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I think I, that's. Some, I don't. I don't think you could do that safely for alcohol. I don't think you could do that safely for opioids. It's not. It's, well, I, I agree. I think it, we. Get, sorry, I think you. I think it has to be done together. You have to get rid of. of the two th prohibition and and that uh, health being pro being a matter of profit at the same time. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any way to solve those problems otherwise. That's a, a really steep hill to climb in this country uh, for people to understand that not everything revolves around money. Um, it's really tragic too when we have so many people dying every year and we're not willing to look at it as a health crisis well we start actually we are starting to look at it that way a little bit but even in the news when they talk about like um, i i just got they got my assistant sent me something said are you interested in talking to this group of people and it was families against fentanyl and i haven't looked into yeah. it yet but just the name in itself kind of makes me wonder those, well, go ahead those are the those are the ones who said they want to have them declared a mass destruction right um Probably. They were, it, there was, I think that's the one that was on, on social media saying that, which just makes me think you, you declare them a weapon of mass destruction and you bomb them out of existence. Exactly. Um, just, in, just in case you have some fentanyl around. It's just, it, it's completely ridiculous. And I mean, there's an issue with media and how they're portraying things as well that just has no relation to reality and, and really makes it very hard to make any change.
It is. Yeah, if you make fentanyl the enemy, that's what they make the opioid crisis. It's opioids are the problem, as if the opioids are coming over here and jumping in people's mouths. I mean, that's not the problem. And if if they were illegally available, it wouldn't be a crisis at all. So, I you know, I, and I do want to. I hope we can get somebody from uh, Families Against Fentanyl in here because I'd like to talk to somebody who might disagree with me a little. I'd like to just see if we could have a conversation because maybe they're not seeing the picture. They they a lot of these people probably lost loved ones, and I understand going through grief and wanting to blame something, but not under, they might just not understand that their blame is being misplaced in a drug that is safely used in hospitals every single day. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, um, um, oh yeah, I was thinking, cause you, you, the first time I ever heard, I ever put it together, what endorphins mean was from your book, uh, endogenous morphine. I don't know why I never put that together, but I was, um, so I was talking with, uh, David poses and we were talking about, you know, people, do things to make them happy and they, and they can become addicted to them. Things like running. And he's like, but running's not necessarily, he's like, I'm not going to say running's as bad as heroin. Running's good for you. He's like, but still people find things that become addicted to. And I didn't think about it on the podcast, but really though, people that become addicted to running are, are addicted to their endogenous morphine, their, their endorphins. Possibly. Are, yeah. Possibly. I mean, I mean again, not yeah. saying it's unhealthy. There's, not, there's um, actually been some, I think some of the new research is suggesting that the runner's high idea is actually more your endocannabinoid system. So really? I wouldn't make firm conclusions on it yet, but, but I mean, the, the basic idea that yes, we like to feel good. Um, it's a natural human impulse really? and well, not a bad one. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was a combination of both, but when I go for a run and I get that, that feeling, it, it definitely feels more like a the the, in, the the side of the morphine that gives you the energy it feels like that it doesn't feel like i'm high on cannabis at all but um i, I don't know what the endogenous cannabinoids feel like maybe i don't know it's strange but i was just thinking like the idea that we we don't outlaw like we could criminalize things people like to do that could be dangerous you know skydiving cl climbing cliffs there's so many th activities people do that we don't criminalize but for some reason people that go inward with their adventures is immediately out like no 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 can't do that and um, I don't know. I was just thinking because I went for a run after the podcast, and I was just thinking, like, like what if they were to say, "Oh, runners have more likely to get by cars, get attacked by dogs." So we're going to outlaw <laughs> running. So I was like, "All right, well, I'll just get a treadmill." And then they go, "Well, you can't do a treadmill because that's a slippery slope to going back to running in the roads." So we outlaw <laughs> treadmills, and they're like, "All right, I'll just build one, and I won't tell them, and I'll run in the garage." And then they have like monitors that monitor heart rates at houses, and that's pretty much what the growing your own cannabis in your own house kind of thing is. Like, we're going to like, well, what if I just do it at my home? Nope, nope. We're gonna right. fly over your house and see if there's any heat lamps and system. Right. So that was a funny thought I had after the podcast. I was like, I wish I would have talked to David about this, but mm -hmm. um, I wanted to talk to you. I, so I, this morning I was going over some of the notes for this podcast, and I looked up. Uh, when I was reading your book. I didn't look at. I'm trying to find her name. I wrote it on here somewhere. The artist uh, Frida Frida Kahlo. Yeah, it's a Mexican yeah. artist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I saw some of her paintings today online for the first time, and I was actually really moved. They were um, kind of dark, but I, she was, you know, in a very painful place. But one of the things she said on her way to the hospital, she said, I hope the leaving will be joyful and I hope never to return. And I was wondering, was she, was she talking about the hospital or, or was she talking about, you know, leaving this yeah. world? Yeah, I can't remember. There are a few of the quotes that I put, if you look at the footnotes, that I wasn't able to confirm them for sure. I'm not sure if that one that one might have been one that was actually from her diaries, and it's, it definitely she definitely said it. There's a lot that's floating around that she never actually said. Um, but yeah, I think it's un, I don't think anyone knows because it's not clear whether she actually um, died of an intentional overdose 
or or not. Um, I don't know. I don't know the the truth of that. Yeah, she said she said uh, another quote might might have not been hers then, but I tried to drown my sorrows, but the damn things learned to swim. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, uh, yeah, so she she used used alcohol. She became dependent on the painkillers that she took. Um, whether she was addicted to them, I don't know. But um, she certainly had a had an extraordinarily hard like with very long term pain and and actually managed you know like got through a lot of it with both alcohol and and uh, a morphine like like another opioid. And for my listeners who don't know about her, we just briefly describe what happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Frida Kahlo is this wonderful Mexican painter who lived in Mexico City. Um, she was married to Diego Rivera, who's sometimes more famous. I'm not sure who's more famous now, but um, the muralist. Uh, she had a, suffered a. She had a polio as a child, so she had a, one leg that was was um with somewhat withered um and then she suffered a as an art school student i think or high, a high school student still she was in a trolley accident and uh like the the pole i guess that you hold on to rammed through her pelvis um so huge reconstructive surgery um months and months of um in bed and chronic pain that never left her they had she had um tried to have children and miscarried and just she had unbelievable spine pain they used to she used to have to wear braces that were designed for her by her doctors to to try and and help but anyway she died I think at at 53 um and yeah it's not clear whether it was an possibly an overdose of the pain medication that she took um or not uh but um during during her life she made the most incredible paintings that were she she would sometimes um she would paint from her bed with an easel set up above her head and, uh, and painted, painted her life. So she painted uh, a lot of very metaphorical things showing the, what it's the actual experience of pain. And she was also, she's known for her kind of joie de vivre that she really grabbed a lot of, a lot out of life. So it's, it's quite joyful as well as, as very agonizing, very painful. And, and she was somebody that you admire and also, um, can relate to in some ways and that, you know, you, you, you go on these long uh, adventures, long flights that can be painful, but you, you, you live your life. To the extent you can. Yeah. 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 And um, another person you brought up only once in your book, but I was curious if you, cause you just brought up a quote from him, but Haruki Murakami, are you a fan? Uh, a bit of a fan. I've got some of his books. I'm not like, it's not my favorite, but yeah, I, I read a lot of his stuff and I like it. Yeah, I only read two of them, but um, it, it's a very he's a very strange writer. It's like it's like he takes you into yes. his dreams, and not like it's it's not mm-hmm. a lot of but it's just a really cool way he tells a story that doesn't. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's it's really an interesting cool. writer. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm a fan. I like it. Um, also, I've never been to Japan, and that's like a bucket list thing. So when I read his books, I kind of feel like I'm there. Really cool. Yeah, yeah. Cool, good writer. Did you read his book about running? No. He's written this book. It's uh like what he's talking about, what I'm talking about when I talk about writing, about running. And it's about, he uses running as a metaphor for writing. And so it's a bit of sort of a memoir, I guess, of, of writing and running. He's a marathon runner. I didn't know a that. Very serious runner and uh, very well, interesting I will person. Write that down to look into. 
just got his latest book and I haven't had a chance to read it because since I started yeah, the podcast, I'm constantly reading about the war on drugs and opioid stuff. And I haven't done any pleasure mm-hmm. reading since I started. But, Make some time. Yeah, I'm going to actually. So I told my, uh, I told my assistant, I was like, let's not book authors for a few months. I'm going to, I'm going to get some other reading done and then we'll go back. But um, I really, really enjoyed though um, your book and David's book and getting to talk to authors. This has been one of my dreams of doing this podcast is getting you know an author on here and talk about, you know, what it's like, you know, I, I, I write songs. I, you know, I've written things for myself, but I don't, I have a lot of respect for what it would take to put together a book like that. All the work it would Thank take. You. So, um, how are you feeling today, by the way? I meant to ask you that. I'm okay. I don't, I guess I save that kind of stuff for, for the book. I, I, I find that, um, after writing this, I'll have people come and sit down in front of me and ask me how my pain is um, or how is your body today? And I actually find that very uncomfortable. Um, it's, I'm going around um, living my life as, as best I can. And I, I guess I'm put quite a separation. I, I've had people asking how I'm able to be so like, vulnerable and, and open in writing. And I think one way of doing it is that I see it very much as not therapy as a, as a material for making literature and, and for writing. And so I'm very comfortable using it, using material from my life in a very detached way. It's very different in, in person. I, like, I actually don't know how to, how to be honest or forthright about that. It's I'm fine. Okay. But, uh, it's not, it's not something I, I actually, I don't tend to talk about it that much with, with people in my life. Okay. I understand that. Um, so I, we can, uh, is there anything else you'd like to add that you want uh, to the podcast before we? No, these were amazing, interesting questions. I just happy to talk about, I, I find all of this absolutely like, I love talking about it. It's, it's interesting. It's fascinating. I've just gotten more and more interested. I really hope not to write a third book that has opium in the title. I think it's time to move on, but I, um, I love this kind of conversation and um, I'm happy to kind of go anywhere that's interesting to you. So, so yeah, just thank you. I don't, this isn't, isn't any other point I want to hammer, hammer through. I don't think. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining the podcast and, and talking with me. This has been great. Thanks so much, Aaron. All right. I'll talk to you. Hopefully talk to you again. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Bye. All right. Peace, Nicks. Thanks for listening. Remember subscribe to our newsletter www.thepeaceondrugs.com. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook. If you like what we're doing, go on Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating. And thank you so much for listening and being a part of this with me. And I will see you next week. Peace Peace out.
Ai, uma tática.